0: Alright, so last week we began a new series in the New Testament book of Philippians, but we did so by spending most of our time uh, in the New Testament book of Acts, Acts 16, which is the account of how the church in Philippi began. So we learned last week about Lydia and a group of women that Paul and Timothy first approached as they sought to establish the church in Philippi. We also learned about a girl who who was a slave to men who both used and abused her for their selfish gain. But this girl was not only physically enslaved, she was also spiritually enslaved as well by an evil spirit. And Paul confronted the evil spirit and cast it out of the girl, freeing her from her enslavement, both spiritual and physical. And this act then resulted in a mob being formed in Philippi because her owners were not happy with her being unable to serve them and accomplish what they wanted her to accomplish. So they created this mob, um, and this mob then beat Paul and Timothy, and eventually they were thrown into prison. And then in the darkness of the prison, in the inner cell, the light of the gospel shone through as Paul and Timothy sang and prayed. And the other prisoners were listening and they were watching and they were profoundly impacted by what they heard and encountered in Paul and Timothy. And so they were moved in a profound way that when the the jail was shaken by an earthquake and their bonds were broken off, they had the opportunity to escape out of the jail, but they did not. And ultimately then the jailer who was charged with keeping Paul and Timothy enslaved in prison. He was charged with guarding them. When he realized that the doors of the prison had been opened and and the prisoners could make an escape, he was about to kill himself until Paul stopped him. And so eventually the jailer was the one who walked Paul and Timothy out of the prison. And eventually he believed in Jesus. And so all of this is how the church in Philippi began. There were these numerous encounters of grace. And what we found is that these encounters with grace caused these individuals to rejoice. Their lives were radically changed by these confrontations with grace. And this was the beginning of the church in Philippi. And so these individuals are the people that Paul is now writing to in this letter. And so let's read the first 11 verses as we really jump into the book of Philippians this morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, God, thank you for these verses. Sometimes it's easy to just get lost in kind of Bible talk or spiritual talk. And so I pray that as we work through these verses this morning that we'll be able to mine some nuggets of grace, some nuggets of gold. And so would you please do a work in our hearts. Allow us to be sensitive to your leading, to your work. Allow us to hear what you want us to hear. And I pray that you would, you would poke each of our hearts in unique ways. That we would hear what you have for us this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. As I was reading these verses this week, I kind of thought of Southerners. Uh, and I especially thought of Robert, uh, growing up in the South. Uh, because throughout these verses, there's like these continual... You alls and so it's it's like y'alls and it's just pervasive in here And so if if you have southern roots, I hope that this can this can just be like a warm blanket for you This morning So all right, let's begin with a brief word on context. Paul makes a, a comment in here about My imprisonment. So, this is helpful to understand the context that Paul is in as we read the whole of this book. Because he's writing this whole book as he's imprisoned. And not just imprisoned, like, ah, for a week or two, like he has been imprisoned for years. So, his prison was house arrest. So, he was able to receive visitors, and these visitors were able to bring gifts to him. But despite these realities, he's still in prison. Right? And he's in prison for a long time. So it would be very easy for him to be led into despair because of this. And, and not just this, but knowing his imprisonment was unjust. He's in prison because people don't like what he's talking about. They don't like what he has to say. And he, especially religious elite, the religious leaders, they don't like what he's saying. He's turning things upside down. The power structures that they are benefiting from, he is turning those things upside down. So he is in prison unjustly. Now aside from Paul's references to being imprisoned here in this book, it would be hard for us to think that he was actually in prison when we read the content of this letter, because it is so encouraging. He expresses so much thankfulness and joy, and it probably causes us to ask the question, why is this man so happy? It'd likely be so easy for him to reminisce about his imprisonment in Philippi. So He's in prison, not in Philippi right now, but he's writing a letter to those in Philippi. Now when the church was established in the city of Philippi, he was imprisoned in Philippi at that time. And what happened at that time was he in prison and God set him free, right? He was not in prison very long at all. So he's got to be thinking, right? There's at least got to be part of him that thinks, man... Why couldn't God just do this again? But that's not his reality. He's writing, having been in prison for years. And in fact, God made it clear that part of his imprisonment was so those he encountered in prison would be able to hear the gospel from him. So Paul's in prison. And the whole of this letter is being written with that context. Okay, so just remember that as we go through this week after week. Okay, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to observe Paul's affection for the Philippian church. And then I want to note the divine role in Paul's affection. So Paul begins by indicating that when he thinks of and he remembers the Philippian church, he is filled with thankfulness. He is moved to give thanks. And later on in the letter, we learn of the Philippians' care towards Paul by sending him gifts, sending him people to care for him and encourage him during his imprisonment. He likely also looks back on how the church was formed in Philippi, And seeing how the church came together in this really unique way. All these supernatural events that were occurring as the church was established. And this likely all of this likely stirs feelings of gratitude within Paul. But Paul doesn't merely emphasize the fact he's thankful for them. He goes on and he says the thought of them incites joy in his heart. He rejoices over them you ever find yourself watching something? Maybe it's a show, maybe it's a child, maybe it's some kind of activity, or maybe while you're just reading a book, and as you're doing that, you just notice that you're smiling. Like, you didn't even know when you started smiling, but then as you look back, you're like, oh, I'm, I am smiling. I don't know when it started. I find myself doing this as I watch my kids play basketball, and, uh, or, or maybe, like, if I see, like, a playful puppy, Sometimes or a baby when I look at babies and babies making baby noises and faces and sounds like I just It just makes me smile especially when I'm in public It makes me think like oh how long have I been doing this and who all is watching me? They have no idea why I just got this goofy grin on my face Paul is saying When he thinks of the philippians When he prays for the philippians he just finds himself feeling that way, smiling, thinking fondly about them. Excites, it excites him as well. Now, we've got to remember, okay, Paul is in prison. So as he thinks about these people, these people who are free, and he prays for these free people, he is delighted. We also know not only are they free, but these people are humans, just like you and I. You know that in some capacity, Paul has been hurt by these people. At some point, he's felt overlooked, he's felt slighted, he's felt forgotten, and yet, he's gushing with thankfulness and joy. In some ways, this is abnormal. Think of your own life. Like even if you think of somebody with thankfulness and joy, it's always a mixed bag, right? We tend to hold on to hurt. We harbor bitterness and regret towards those who have hurt us. Even while we have feelings of thankfulness, oftentimes we might feel this about our parents, right? They did this thing. They said this thing, and yet we're super thankful for them as well. Paul is like us. He's broken just like we are. Sinful just like we are. But this letter also proves something. It proves that he has been radically changed as well. And and in this, he's calling us to something also. He even goes so far as to say in verse 8, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What is that? Right? When we hear that, maybe it's easy for us to think of like empty sentimentality, platitudes that maybe we would speak in a social situation but not actually mean. Though Paul wasn't perfect in this, his statement does reflect a deep abiding concern and care for these folks who are like family to him. He developed a depth of relationship with them as the, the church began. And he endured some intense situations with them, some really high highs. Seeing God cast out an evil spirit from this girl. Seen prisoners himself set free while he's being in chains. God sets him free. These are really high, highs. And all of these individuals, the church in Philippi and Paul and Timothy, they were all formed together. And this meaningful bond was developed. And so when Paul thinks of them, looks at them, remembers them, they are near to his heart. So, what is the affection of Christ? Jesus well it made me think of what's known as the passion of Christ right this week leading up to Jesus death so his death his suffering all that's entailed in that and and in that then is what we talk about with the gospel when we think of the gospel that this is God's affection for sinners this is his passion for for us this is what he thinks about us he's willing to go and to die for us in this way so to have this deep affection is one thing right for paul to just have this or to to talk about it but then the question quickly becomes where does it come from right if if someone wanted it where do they go to cultivate this affection and paul doesn't leave us without an answer To this, he tells us as readers explicitly why he's filled with thankfulness and joy for this church in Philippi. He says, It's because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Okay? So clearly, he's going to connect his affection for this church with the gospel. All right? This is why he feels the way that he feels about them. He goes on then, and he's going to defend his feelings by stating that it's right for him to feel this way because they are all partakers with him of grace. Okay, so there's a couple of things going on here. All right, so on a surface level, there's this shared experience between Paul and the Philippian church. They've walked through some fiery trials together. They've had their high highs. They have stories that they can share to reminisce, to laugh about together, to retell with one another, to marvel at God's work in these profound ways. So there's this common language that is shared between the church in Philippi and Paul and Timothy. But there's much more than just a shared experience the shared experience is based on something that supernaturally unifies them together the gospel now think of our lives we like to partner around things to unify around things we unify around hobbies oftentimes right we unify around interests that we have But the reality is our interests change. We change. We get bored with things. All kinds of different things and then move on to something that's new or exciting. I've seen this happen so often in my life and in the life of other people as well. Like video games, right? You might like spend a lot of time playing a video game and get really good at it. And conquer it. And then move on to the next one right like this is what we do kids adults we do that it maybe it's golf right you work really hard get better at golf and then you move on to something else like off-grid living or a way of eating or a certain type of exercise regimen we do this over and over get full, fully engaged in something and then tire of it and move on to something else but if our partnership is based on anything frivolous, and when I say frivolous, I'm talking about anything that can easily change, what that means is that our partnerships will change routinely. We'll, we'll maybe develop a relationship with this person, but then, then we're going to you know, say, ah, I'm not interested in that, and then we're going to start all, start all over again and start to develop a relationship with someone else. And and what Paul is saying here is that his partnership with the Philippian church doesn't change like that. It's not as though one day when he was there planting the church, he felt strongly about them, but then he moves on and he's forgotten about them. He's thinking about other church plants. No, he's saying, no, I'm still tied to you. I still care deeply about you. And the reason for that is because of the gospel. That is what ties us together, what unites us. And so I think then a question we we can ask is, how is the gospel different? How is it able to accomplish this while these other hobbies or interests that we have, why they can't? Primarily, it's because it's based on something bigger than us. It's based on something outside of ourselves. So the gospel is based on Jesus. Jesus, the one who came not to be served, but to serve. When partnerships are based on our interests or preferences, the partnership is doomed from the beginning because we know that we're fickle. We are fickle people. Every single one of us in some way is... Fickle. And so when we rally around an interest or a hobby, ultimately what we're asking people to rally around is us and my interest in this thing. We're asking people to put hope in us. But we know in the same way people disappoint us, we're going to disappoint people as well. Partnerships based around sinful humans are thin and shallow So we need to look outside of ourselves We need to look for something much bigger than us To find sturdiness to find something lasting to to find something Worthwhile so we we need something big and grand to captivate us and to rally Around and the gospel is the only thing in the world that can hold us in this way. This is why really successful people will attain, they've attained their dreams and they're still disappointed. Or when they get to the top of the mountain, they realize there's another mountain left to climb. They just couldn't see that because there was clouds there, right? But once you get to the top of the mountain and some of those clouds are blown away, then it's like, oh no, there's another mountain. So This happens all the time in culture. Tom Brady, he said this after winning his first three Super Bowls. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I love playing football, and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. There's a deep yearning there. There's a cavity he's he's talking about. He can't put his finger on it, but he's searching. He's longing for something more than world championships in football can bring him. Myself with this one, but Madonna. She said, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. She gets to the top of that mountain, conquers it, and then realizes, oh, now that's normal. That's mediocre. Now I've got to climb that other mountain. And it's just this ongoing treadmill, right? It's just perform, achieve, go, go, go. If we want to find meaning in life, We've got to rally around something bigger than ourselves, bigger than our dreams. We've got to rally around the gospel. If we want satisfaction, we must orient our lives around Jesus. If we want contentment, and every single one of us does, there's not a person here who does not want contentment. contentment. Jesus Church... And Jesus is the only sure thing. In the midst of all the horrors of this world, we need something bigger, stronger, more powerful than us. And what Paul is celebrating about the church in Philippi is that they were partakers of something greater than themselves. They were partakers of grace. They had encountered grace, and their lives had been radically changed And they were spending their days delighting in the kindness of God. But, But this wasn't just a one and done encounter. Their ongoing reflection on it, on grace, their partaking of it resulted in them showing exceeding kindness to Paul and others. An encounter with grace leads to an ongoing reveling in it. This fact that a perfect God came to this wretched world to suffer and die for your sins because we were on a direct road to hell, oftentimes unknowingly. Grace has this cosmic life-altering impact on our lives that draws us in and captivates us and keeps us there. And so when I, and I observe this in others, But I do this as well. When I have this half-hearted response to grace, a minimization of grace to even a good cup of coffee, though, you know, we, we might minimize grace to that. Though I would say that grace is seen in that way for sure. But when grace is largely unimpressive, I get really concerned. When grace is just ho-hum, just run-of-the-mill, it gets really concerning. And I get concerned that Jesus is simply an accessory to our lives. I get concerned that we're doing what Paul warned the church in Rome about in Romans 2-4. He says there, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and His patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So when we look at Jesus hanging on a cross, heaving, trying to get breath, and and the blood is dripping down off of Him, He's suffering in this way. When we look at that as kind of an abstract thing, or, or almost like a comic book, That it's not something that really grabs hold of us. It's just this, almost like a fiction story out there. When that begins to happen in us. It conveys this reality that grace is not to us what it really is. Grace is intended to radically transform, radically change us in the deepest parts of who we are. Grace is intended, not just on day one to captivate us, but to captivate us through the whole of our lives, every day of our lives, that when we wake up, we think, man, this is a great day to be alive because of grace. If we're honest, which is oftentimes hard for us, We need to let sections of the Bible like this be a mirror to us. We need to be able to look at Paul and maybe see how we're different than him. On the one hand, we know the church in Philippi wasn't perfect because they're humans. They didn't partake of grace perfectly. They didn't believe the gospel impeccably, but we sure don't want to use that as an excuse for why we are lazy, why we're dismissive, why we minimize the beauty of grace. If we've seen any sense of the beauty of grace, we'll want to let these verses poke and prod our own hearts to see where we need to grow up in faith, where we need to mature in the gospel. And the reality is, when we look at Paul sitting in a prison, gushing with thankfulness, and joy, that mirror comes back and reveals lives, hearts that are oftentimes ungrateful, that are oftentimes lacking joy. We don't oftentimes remember each other with fondness. And and we can't say, you know, I don't remember other people with fondness because they're just a buffoon, because they're they're the fools. The problem is with them. The reality is, we don't think this way, we don't act this way, we don't live this way because we're not bathing in grace each day. We need more grace. What's the antithesis of grace? It's law. Okay? We don't believe what Paul believes in verse 6. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The faith that God has planted in your heart is not grown by your efforts it's not kept safe by your rigor in spiritual disciplines the work of faith that god has begun in our hearts isn't brought to completion by our efforts but by our ongoing trust in jesus you need to give your time and your effort to believing in jesus knowing him and as we know him then acting out of that serving him in a variety of ways. But, but in all of this, it's this call to die to self. We don't become thankful, joy-filled people by trying to curate the ideal life experience, by saying, if I can just do these hobbies, if I can have this number of kids, if I can follow this certain diet, if I can, f- if I can meet this certain person right it's not about your joy your thankfulness is not dependent on you curating the perfect ideal life but rather by looking at Jesus over and over and over and believing in him and this is why Paul ends this section in Philippians by praying for the church in Philippi let's look at what he prays for them. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. He wants something to abound. It's not their bank account. It's not the stamps in their passport. It's not their or their children's safety. It's not fun experiences. He wants their love to abound more and more. And notice, it's not a love that's defined by them or by us. It's a love that is defined by knowledge. Knowledge of God. Knowledge and discernment. So it's a love defined by God. So when we look at the gospel and we see what what love, God's love actually looks like, we know it's sacrificial. Okay, so abounding in love more and more means our lives are going to look like sacrifices. Sacrifices. Which means our lives are going to involve discomfort. Our lives are going to be marked by patience. Which I don't know about you guys, but I find patience hard a lot of times. To abound in love more and more is going to be hard. And Paul goes on to pray for the Philippians' ability to approve what is excellent? Which if we are paying attention to what he's previously written here in Philippians, we know this is referring to gospel-rootedness. Partnership around the gospel. That's where excellence is found. Not on athletic fields or courts or in a classroom or in a boardroom. In the gospel. It's something that's found in a gift given to us rather than an achievement earned by us. It's being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The mature, affectionate Christian is someone who's looked outside of themselves, looked outside of themselves for help, looked outside of themselves for righteousness, looked outside of themselves for everything that we need. we're looking outside of our preferences and following Jesus on whatever that path might look like for us all right three points of gospel gospel application for us as we close here this morning first of all affection for Jesus and his church flows from an understanding and an encounter of Jesus affection you. I always want those that I'm leading spiritually to be growing in affection for each other. So the danger then for me is to stand up here and to tell you, be more affectionate for each other. Care for each other better. But that's not the answer, and that's not what I'm telling you to do. It's what I desire for us, But that's not what I'm telling you to do as though I'm creating a law Any lack of care for one another Lack of or or any disengagement we have with jesus church is merely a symptom Of a core reality in our hearts It conveys a misunderstanding Of how amazing of of how amazing jesus kindness Is towards us and, and it conveys an unbelief in Jesus' affection for us. So what I really long for each of us to understand is how undeserving we are of God's kindness. No one walked in here this morning like with this spotlight on them from heaven thinking like, that person has got it all together. This whole week has gone by. I've given God tons of reasons to not show me kindness. To not show me affection. And yet, He welcomes me and you with open arms. And and not just one time. And because you've screwed up the rest of your life, continually turning to other things, He's like begrudging. His arms crossed like, fine, fine. Okay, I guess you can come. No. Arms open. Beckoning you to come to Him. His kindness is unreal. And we get these real fractured views of God. Like He's just putting up with us. He's calling us. Welcoming us. Beckoning us in. He loves You. To understand that will cause us to be blown away by his lavish kindness for us. So the answer is to first understand Jesus' affection for us. What flows from that will take care of itself. It will result in us having affection and care for each other. But ground-level foundation, we've got to understand God's affection, love, and care for us. Secondly, we read this verse, He will bring it to completion. The kindness of God is seen in an ongoing way by Him keeping His promise to carry us through. And what's so compelling about this is what we read in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. Paul writes there, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Every single day, you and I are unfaithful. And we are unfaithful because we are faithless. We are not exercising faith in God. And so we are unfaithful people. But the beauty of the gospel is your salvation isn't dependent on you being faithful. Your salvation is dependent on God being faithful to you. This is the best news in the world. This is what we should want to hitch our wagons to, to say, I want to follow that God. I want to trust in Him because He alone is trustworthy. Jesus is faithful to us to a degree that blows our mind. It blows our mind if we truly understand it. Even in marriage, we we can't even come close. We can get glimpses of this for sure. We can get glimpses of this in deep friendships with others. But God's faithfulness to us is so far beyond. And He is the one who will bring to completion what He has started in us. So, that weight that you feel on your shoulder to perform for God, to do all this stuff, you're free from that. You can live in freedom. And the hope is, God's design is that then, man, I want to follow Him. I want to sacrifice what I have. I want to give myself to Him because of how faithful He is to me. But it's not be faithful and earn. Salvation. No, you're saved. And once we understand how great that salvation is, that's what compels our faithfulness to God, our sticking close to Him all the days of our lives. Lastly, God's desire is for you to be distinctly marked as a thankful, joy filled person. Now, as I've just said, this is not a despair filled rule you are called to uphold and make yourself into this. The available availability of this comes through Jesus Christ. Your ability to be thankful starts with Jesus. Your ability to be joy-filled all the days of your lives, no matter the circumstances, is dependent on you understanding and believing in Jesus. It is the cares of this world that strip our joy and cause us to be resentful, bitter, despairing individuals. And so the call is to turn to Jesus. This might require us to turn away from Netflix, to turn away from social media. It might require us to ask those sitting next to us for help. But ultimately, we need to turn to Jesus so he can turn our hearts away from these things that steal our joy, that kill our thankfulness. And ideally, as he cultivates joy and thankfulness in our hearts, the design is that then we can help cultivate joy and thankfulness in the hearts of those around us as well.